I'm Tavin Asir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavin Asir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavinasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, Dr. Richard Safir. Richard is the Chief Medical Director of Employee Health and Well-Being for John Hopkins Medicine, where he leads the Healthy at Hopkins Employee Health and Well-Being Strategy. I invited Richard to come on my show so we could talk about his book, A Cure for the Common Company, a well-being prescription for a happier, healthier, and more resilient workforce. As my background is in the medical sciences, I'm looking forward to speaking with Richard and learning what the medical sciences has to say about how leaders can address the ongoing issues of rising employee stress levels and burnout and create a workplace culture that both addresses the organization's needs and those of their employees. Hi, Richard. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. Hey, Tanvir. Great to great to be there. So, Richard, before we delve into the blueprint you share in your book for how leaders can create a well-being culture and organization, I was thinking it might be helpful for us to get some clarity about what well-being really means. I mean, we hear so much about wellness, and now we're here talking about well-being, but I think it'd be helpful for us to frame our conversation with making sure everyone understands what it is we're talking about when we talk about well-being, especially in the context of in the workplace. Sure. Well, well-being is defined in my book by the individual. Each of us is on our own well-being journey. We all have different needs that help us feel well and happy and healthy. And as we go along this well-being journey, we're looking for our optimal state of wellness. Now, unfortunately, too often in the workplace, Well-being and wellness are defined as having healthy foods and exercising, and these are important, but there's so much more to being well and having a healthy and happy workday. I'm glad you brought this up because this was actually the question I wanted to start our conversation with, which is, I'm sure many people have experienced wellness efforts or initiatives in their organization. In fact, in your book, you point out how the wellness economy is estimated to have a value of over $4 trillion. And yet at the same time, we're all seeing those headlines of the growing issue of employee stress and burnout and how organizations need to change what is an unsustainable approach to the way people work. So before we look at what we need to do right to address this, Richard, what are we doing wrong right now in our efforts to improve employee well-being? Tanvir, I think there's two major problems. One is that leaders and employers are looking at health and well-being as the sole responsibility of the individual so that, hey, we're giving you benefits, we're teaching you how to be healthy, so now you should be able to do it. And the second problem I see is that most organizations are just 
putting the benefits and the programs together and making them available and thinking that they're done. And so those are the two biggest problems that come to mind. Of course, uh, as soon as I started giving you the answer, Tanvir, I thought of an, another major one, if you have a minute for me to give it to you. Sure. Well, this is a leadership podcast. And one of the big problems is that most leaders don't recognize that they have a role in the health and well-being of their team. And even for those who do recognize that they play a role, they've never been given training. They've never been taught what they can do to support health and well-being on their team. 100% agree with you. And I appreciate your insights here, Richard, because I'm sure most of our listeners have participated in some wellness initiative in the organization and came away with the impression that it was really more a feel-good measure than a genuine effort to really address what's behind the decline in our sense of well-being at work. So now that we understand what we're doing that is not as effective as we'd hope it to be, let's look at your prescription for what leaders should be doing to create a well-being culture in the organization. And in your book, you describe the well-being culture as being made of six building blocks, shared values, social climate, norms, culture connection points, peer support, and leadership engagement. Now, we don't have time to cover all six of these building blocks. I'd like to focus on a few that really stood out for me as I was reading your book, starting with the building block you call social climate, where the goal is to create a workplace environment where people feel a sense of belonging. There's a shared vision, and there's a positive attitude promoted by leaders, not just when things are going well, but especially when your employees are having to deal with an obstacle or setback. Now, if you've listened to a few episodes of my podcast, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that this building block stood out for me. In fact, in my book, Leadership Vertigo, I have a whole chapter on the importance of building a sense of community and organization. So my question for you, Richard, is how does this factor into creating a well-being culture? And I'd love it if you could share some of the simple but powerful efforts you write about in your book that leaders can employ to help define the social climate in their workplace. Sure. Uh, I'm glad you brought this uh, building block up as well. It's one of my favorites because everybody who spends the majority of their day working wants to work in a positive and supportive climate. People want to feel like they're part of a team, uh, genuinely, not just by name. And so building a sense of community can happen through a number of different ways. One way that I'm starting to see a little bit of um, attention on the internet is around having fun together. And I strongly believe that we have lost the fun in our workday. Now, granted, some of us are in some pretty serious lines of business, and healthcare certainly is full of serious situations. And yet, we should be able to find a few moments every day to kind of just let back a little bit and find some humor in something. Laughing is great medicine, and laughing together instantly creates a bond. So I, I would convert the question and answer to not only say, here are some of the ways that we um, create community to, that's exactly what we all need to do. We each need to find a way to bring fun into our day. Now, this may not come naturally for some people, and that's fine. So really, the much more common way is just to get to know each other as individuals. We we often get to know each other through what kind of work we do and what our responsibilities are. But taking the time to get to know each other 
as individuals really helps improve our trust because in giving our part of ourselves to each other, we're opening ourselves up, we're making ourselves vulnerable and that leads to trust. And trust of course improves collaboration and a lot of other great things. Um, you know, Tanvir, I could keep going on, but sometimes I feel like maybe less is more. So I'll, I'll pause there. No, it's okay, Richard, because as you were talking about how one of the ways we can create that social climate is to kind of find ways for us to have fun at work. And immediately my mind went to how there's some people probably thinking, oh, yeah, but then there's that whole minefield of what some people might find fun is uncomfortable for others and so forth. And so you actually gave us a brilliant segue to address that by looking at the next building block in your prescription for well-being culture, and that is of norms. Yeah. And you describe norms as being those default behaviors and actions we take without thinking about it. Right. And as with most behaviors, norms are defined by our attitudes and beliefs. And I think this is where many of us can see where even in our own efforts to improve our well-being end up failing because it often requires us to change these ingrained behaviors and beliefs we have about ourselves. But as you point out in your book, norms can be changed and created. So using that point about talking about how we can bring more fun into our workplace and in the scope of creating a well-being culture, how do we identify which norms we should change? And again, thinking about those personal initiatives we've all taken at one point to improve our own health, how do we make sure these changes stick? So the norms that are most likely to succeed in being built are the ones that are chosen collectively by the team. And so a frank conversation amongst your teammates about what it is they need to support their well-being is the right place to start. And I'm often hearing these days that we need some separation between work and our home life, or some people refer to that as work-life balance. And so choosing a norm um, might be daunting in the sense that you have to bring up the topic and most leaders aren't comfortable or familiar with bringing up the topic of well-being. But once you get past that then and people start to contribute, it really gets to be much easier to have that conversation. Now, I say it with ease, and yet I know that if there's not a lot of trust on the team, then it's going to be difficult for people to share their genuine needs. Uh, because, you know, if there's no trust or psychological safety, there's a fear of being seen as weak or possibly not being a team player or, or not wanting to do your part to help um, reach the goals. So um, maybe even before you have the, that norm discussion, just check in on that previous building block, social climate, to make sure it's in good shape. So now that you've identified which norm you're going to address, uh, you want to use a number of different uh, building blocks um, that that are in the book. This is kind of circular. And when you see the figure in the book, you'll realize that these building blocks overlap. So another building block is leadership engagement. So as the leader, you need to be the one who's driving this conversation around norms. And so then once you know which norm you're going to address, uh, you can draw on uh, not only your role as the leader, but the other building blocks and specifically the building block of culture connection points. Now, Tanvir, I'm not sure if I just made all of your listeners dizzy or not, but <laughs> the building block culture connection points is a whole bunch of nudges, things that shape and influence 
our everyday decisions. So if we're going to stick with the work-life balance, and let's just say that your team works on a computer a lot, one problem that part of the workforce has is disconnecting from email after normal work hours. And so perhaps a culture connection point in this case is an email from the boss at the end of the day saying, hey, it's five o'clock or it's 5.30, whenever it is, I'm logging off from email tonight. And just a reminder, please don't look at your emails until you start work tomorrow. That is a nudge. It's also a permission, and it really can go a long way. Another use of a culture connection point to, to build and maintain that norm is if someone happens to send an email off hours to not reply, but next day, just speak to that person individually, probably over the phone or in person, not, not by email. Say, hey, you know, I really appreciate that you're wanting to do a great job. And it would be great if you kept with our team decision to not email outside of work hours. Because when you do that, uh, it might make others feel as if they should be working off hours as well. So there's a little sample, Tanvir. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that building block of culture connection points. But I think your example you just shared, going back to the building block of norms, reflects something else you point out in your book that I think it's a good place here for us to point out. And that is, is that as much as we're talking about the organizational well-being culture, there are actually subcultures within your organization, which I think if we all think about it, it kind of makes sense. When you think about in your organization, you have these different teams when you have to work with this other team, there's some teams where you'll enjoy collaborating with and other ones where you might not just because their way of doing things is so different from the way you do things. And that's because they have a different subculture from yours. And so as you were giving this example of norms, I can see some people saying, yeah, but that might work for us. But then this other team, they might not. And so I think it's important here that maybe if you can articulate this idea of subcultures, might make people appreciate the value of understanding which norms we should change and refine in order to create that well-being culture. Yeah, I would just look at um, any person's country. So you're in Canada and you live in Montreal, and the culture in Montreal is probably different than the culture in Toronto. And yet you're part of the same Canadian culture, but the subcultures in your two cities, your two metropolitan areas are quite different. So in the workplace, um, one company culture, two different departments, and those department subcultures are influenced by the preferences and the work styles and the, the personalities that each of those team members brings to work, which is why it's so important for team leaders to address their own culture and not just rely on the larger company to do the work. We can't just look at the central part of the organization who has the day-to-day -day responsibility of employee health and well-being and kind of wipe our hands and say, oh, they're taking care of that. In fact, we're all responsible for our own well-being as well as the well-being of the people on our teams. Absolutely. That's the other thing I found that was very noteworthy in your book is that it's not so much that we're trying to prescribe to people how to live their lives to be more healthy. It's what is the influence you have on those around you that impacts their ability to change their lifestyle, to live in a state of well-being, as you point out in your book? 
Yeah, yeah. And I thank you for pulling that out. Um, it makes me feel like uh, I actually wrote something that, that came across the way it was intended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, too often, you know, we, most people know you can't just turn to, to someone and say, hey, you need to quit smoking. Because really, they would have quit already if they could have. And the same goes for a whole host of other unhealthy behaviors. What we really can do, though, is make the conditions such that it's easier for people to rid, get rid of their unhealthy habits or to build the healthy habits that they're seeking. You mentioned earlier the building block of culture connection points when we were discussing norms, Richard. So I'd really like to now examine that one because I'm sure some people who are paying attention are probably wondering what are culture connection points. So what are culture connection points, Richard? And how do we go about using this building block to facilitate a well-being culture in our organization? Culture connection points are the, the nudges or the levers that we can use to influence behaviors and attitudes. They don't make us behave a certain way, but they can certainly influence us. So I'll give you um, a, an example from the behavioral economics uh, field that we use in our own employee health and well-being strategy. So we, we can't tell people to eat an apple a day, but you know what? If we put them at the checkout uh, line instead of the candy bars, and you put the candy bars back in a corner somewhere that's not eye level, it's more likely that at the checkout line, those impulse purchases would be that piece of fruit and not the candy bar. You can also change the prices of healthy versus unhealthy foods to encourage those choices as well. So those are a couple examples of um, different nudges or culture connection points. Culture connection points also include marketing communications. Too often, a employee health and well-being strategy, it includes marketing communications, but it's not often very persuasive or engaging. We need to be more creative. Uh, we need to take a lesson from the successful companies who've got the uh, great marketing and, and branding in order to engage our, our workforce more broadly. Tanvir, there's like a dozen different culture connection points that I hope our listeners will explore today, but I just wanted to give you a sample. Oh, and I appreciated that. And, you know, so far, Richard, we've been looking at what leaders can do from an organizational level. And just now you were talking about what we're communicating. And I'd like to now focus on what leaders can do themselves to promote a well-being culture. And you briefly touched on it when you mentioned the building block leadership engagement. And now clearly from the name, what's needed here is direct involvement on the part of leaders, that you have to do more than just sign off on a wellness program or initiative. Yeah. So as a leader, Richard, what are some of the things we should be doing to be engaged in the process of creating a well-being culture? How do we make sure we're using our leadership and the influence that you just mentioned when you were talking about the idea of those culture connection points? How do we use that influence that comes with our leadership? to make well-being truly a part of who we are as a team and organization. Yeah, just, you know, at the very obvious level, you've had many previous guests who've talked about what it takes to be a good leader. And being a good leader does contribute to the health and well-being of the people on your team. So that's, you know, incredibly important, not just to get the job done and reach your team goals, 
but as a matter of supporting health and well-being. And I'll mention one of your previous guests, Stephen Covey in particular, who um, I quote in my book uh, because I do call out vulnerability and trust as essential for building um, that, that community that I highlight in the social climate building block. But beyond the content that your listeners have heard on, in this podcast series, I'll give you four other um, at a high level things or areas that leaders should be thinking about. One is being a role model. It's not enough to tell your team to get a good night's sleep. You need to get a good night's sleep as well, or whatever else you do to make you your best person. And if your healthy habits are visible and you can show them in the workplace, that's great. Because when people see their leaders engaging in healthy activities, it's going to go a lot further than just talk. A second uh, way a leader can um, engage in the well-being conversation is check in with their emotions regularly. The emotions of the team leader greatly influence the emotions of the people they lead. So before you walk into a meeting or even just on the hour, check in with yourself. Are your muscles tense? If they are, maybe you're stressed. Are you hungry? Because for some people, when they're hungry, they can get irritable. Whatever it is, how you're feeling, try to bring yourself into a place where you're happy, healthy, and thinking clearly so that you can respond appropriately to the people on your team and be a positive source of energy and not a stressor. Uh, third area, make well-being a priority. So again, it's, it's not just, hey, well-being is important. Let me show you that I know it's a priority. And leaders can do that in a variety of ways. They could put well-being on their agenda every week. That is a placeholder. It gives space to determine what part of well-being we're either going to discuss today, practice today, communicate new resources, whatever it is. But just to have that space says, you know what? Well-being is important. And the fourth area that I'll leave our listeners with, Tanvir, is removing barriers to well-being. So there's often things going on with an individual's job that can be frustrating and things that get in the way of making it easy for them to do their job well. Maybe it's that they need an updated version of a piece of software or another tool, or maybe there's... Um, a challenge with them, uh, a new re uh, returning mother to the workplace with wanting to uh, breastfeed. So she wants to pump her breast milk in the workplace and can't find a quiet place. The only way we're going to know as leaders to what's getting in the way of the well-being of our team is to ask them. Because most individuals, unless your relationship with your manager is excellent, are not going to share personal parts of their life that have to do with their health and well-being. Right. And yeah, I love this list that you gave, Richard, because so far, I think in our conversation, you've done a really good job of showing not only how feasible, but how accessible it is to create a well-being culture in your organization. So I'd actually like to switch gears here and actually look at some of the obstacles that leaders need to be ready for that can actually impede and even derail their efforts in creating that well-being culture. And in your book, you actually detail nine issues leaders should be mindful of. Now, I don't want to delve into all nine, 
But which ones, based on what we've discussed so far, do you think leaders should keep an eye on, Richard? Well, I, I think accountability is important. We all think about accountability as far as like, hey, did that person get their job done? But in the context of creating a well-being culture on your team, we need to hold each other accountable to supporting each other's well-being and not harming each other's well-being. So, for example, uh, if someone is has come forward and shared with their team in a previous well-being discussion that they're struggling because they have diabetes, then to show respect for them, you know, be mindful about what you might be bringing into the workplace to share with your team. So it's not uncommon for the day after Halloween for everybody to bring in their leftover candy. So there's like a classic example. But actually, you know, if that's once a year, but Leaders sometimes think they're doing the nice thing by bringing in donuts every week. And that means it's obviously a much more frequent exposure for that person struggling to make healthy food choices so that they don't get sick. So so there's one way of talking about accountability. And then on the flip side, where someone's overtly harming someone's well-being, uh, being disrespectful or... Um, even teasing someone who is eating healthy, uh, that needs to be shut down. And we need to do it in a way that uh, demonstrates respect. So aside from the group, but that behavior needs to end immediately. And all too often, leaders and coworkers are afraid to confront people on the team who may have positioned uh, something as being kind of a teasing way. But in fact, uh, it, it's really harmful and um, can be deleterious to each of our own well-being paths. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, Richard, I could tell you when I was reading your book about the different things leaders can do to create this well-being culture in the organization, one of the things that came to mind was how often I hear leaders using things like a pizza party on Fridays, you know, to create team spirit and team cohesion. Yeah. And after reading your book, I thought, you know, it'd be a better thing is to arrange like, hey, guys, this Friday afternoon, we're all going to go out to this nearby nature park and we're going to clean it up. Yep. One reason you're going to encourage volunteerism, yep. which you point out is another way to encourage well-being that people feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, which actually ties into that sense of belonging and community. But you're also getting people to unknowingly do exercise, right? Because yeah. you're out enjoying the fresh air. You're getting exercise, walking about and so forth. And you're doing good, not just for yourself but for the community at large at the same time. Right. It's such a reflex that we turn to the pizza party or mm -hmm. ice cream for employee appreciation. You know, if anything, and you've, you're demonstrating this, uh, Tanvir, when people read the book and start to understand the concepts, it's really a matter of being more mindful of our decisions. And when we start including well-being in our decision process, we're going to be able to support the health and well-being of the people on our team, and our team members are going to think we're much better. Uh, we're much better bosses. So, Richard, we started our conversation today examining why so many wellness initiatives fail in today's organizations, and now we've gone through the various steps for how leaders can create a well-being culture in their organization. I was wondering if you could share some final thoughts on what leaders should do to ensure they are in fact creating a well-being culture in their organization. Thank you. I would leave by saying 
put well-being on the agenda. I mentioned it earlier today. Tanvir, I get asked this question a lot. Like, if I could only do one thing, what would it be? And in my mind, if leaders put well-being on the agenda and give it a space, then each week or each month, whenever that regular meeting is, you will pause and think about, okay, what am I going to put on the agenda related to well-being? And it will cause some reflection, not only about the actual time in the meeting, but where are we as a team in, in this area? So that uh, would be the one action. The one thought I would ask our leaders and listeners to take away is that well-being is a team sport. I started by mentioning that the one of the big problems is that we look at it as an individual endeavor. But I would ask our listeners today to walk away thinking that well-being is a team sport because it's not an individual endeavor. We're all influenced by the people around us, including those we work with and our manager. Thank you for those insights, Richard. I think it's really important that leaders hear this kind of message, especially when we're seeing this growing push to return to the way we worked pre-pandemic, where we're not addressing the structural issues that predate the pandemic, which have made employee burnout and rising stress levels an alarming trend in today's workplaces. And I think in our conversation here on my podcast has not only demonstrated the necessity for making that change, but also where we can begin to not only improve our work lives, our ability to do our work, but that we also end up having more satisfying, fulfilling lives because we're able to address all of our needs and not just the needs of our organization. So thanks, Richard, for this insightful and I think encouraging conversation on how we can improve our well-being through the workplace culture we live and work within. Well, Tanvir, thanks for having me. Uh, there is a cure for the common company. It's about 280 pages, and I hope you'll each take the prescription. I hope so, too. It's a fascinating and insightful read, and I appreciate you coming on my show to share your insights with my listeners, Richard. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about Richard's book, check out the show notes for this episode on our podcast page at tavernaseer.com slash LBC. And if you're interested in learning more about my speaking work, either for a keynote or a workshop, please check out my speaking page on my website where you can learn more about the topics I share in my keynotes and corporate training sessions, as well as what past attendees have had to say about my work. I'm Tavernaseer, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Leadership Biz Cafe.